hold of that mystery now in God's Word by turning to Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is where we will continue our worship this morning. Allow me to read this chapter for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Power. It's been much on my mind of late for pretty common grace reasons. A friend of mine a few months ago challenged me to read the um, Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer entitled The American Prometheus. It's a fascinating title. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, Prometheus was the one who stole fire from the gods and brought it down to earth, thereby giving man a great tool, but also giving him the means of his own destruction. And so Oppenheimer, considered to be the father of the atomic bomb, his story is traced, and the subtitle, I think, summarizes the book and its angst better than anything I've seen, The Tragedy and triumph of J. Robert Oppenheimer. This book took 20-plus years to write. It's interesting. It's the first definitive biography on the man who unleashed one of the most powerful forces in the world. And yet, it was, for many, a triumph, and for many, a tragedy. The triumph was for those of us who were Americans thinking, He introduced the weapon that would end the war to supposedly end all wars. There's a win. But the paradox of Oppenheimer is that as soon as he created the weapon, he did everything in his power to undo it, to tamp down its power. In fact, by many being accounted to be like the bad guy because he didn't want any one nation, any one person to have access to that kind of of power, And so the last half of his life is considered a tragedy by some because some thought him to be un-American. I will not speak on things which I do not know. I can't say. I'm only three-fourths of the way through the book. But the reflection upon power, I think, is fascinating because we all understand that, that fine line between tragedy and triumph when it seems that some one individual or some one nation gets a little too strong. I mean, it's good for us. It's a triumph. It's a wonderful thing for raw power, unadulterated, unfiltered power to be in the hands of one that you trust. Just take the atomic bomb, for example. It's nice to know when your country has all the warheads, when your military leader has access to that kind of power. 
on a more trivial plane. We appreciate power and strength when somebody is on our team versus the other team. If you've ever done the traditional tug of war, you're not looking for the guy with finesse to be anchoring the thing. You want somebody that's strong, someone that's powerful. It's for you. I think this in part explains our culture's fascination with comic book heroes. I don't know, I don't keep track of these things, but it seems like 70% of the movies that come out are based on some kind of a comic book. And what is it? It's the American penchant for the powerful. We want somebody to fight the battles that we cannot. And yet, there is also a, a bad part of power. There is something in our culture today that is especially suspicious of anyone that would seem to be too strong. Lord Acton's maxim. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You ever heard that? It is true. Our society is a little more suspicious of power than they've ever been before. Some people call it cultural Marxism. It's the the lens by which people will look at everything around them through that of power or strength. And they're suspect of it. They actually don't want any one individual to accrue too much power. They, they want it to be tamped down. They want it to be even. They want it to be leveled out. And, and we, could, we could get that. We could understand that to a degree. And yet the biblical facts are that some people are more powerful than others by divine sovereign plan. Don't worry, this will not be a political diatribe. I want to take that comment to its ultimate extreme and just ask a few clarifying questions in light of our love-hate relationship with power. Does any ruler have absolute power? Question two. Should any ruler have absolute power? And then third, if so, is this a good thing? Our text answers yes, yes, and yes. What we have in Psalm 21 is a celebration of divine power residing in God's King. They're not suspect of it. They're not iffy about it. It's a celebration of one king having all the power, all the strength. Maybe you noticed, but that Hebrew literary device features prominently here of inclusio. It starts off in Psalm 21, verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And then you look at the last verse, be exalted in your strength. The whole thing is a celebration of strength. It's a celebration of power. Power residing in a particular king. Now, if some of the things that we read earlier in this psalm seem familiar to what we read last week, this is a counterpart to Psalm 20. It's probably the only place in the Psalter where the two books firmly belong, or the two chapters firmly belong together. In Psalm 20, remember last week, we were, it was a a prayer for the king to win. Well, this is praise, this one is praise that the king won. You'll see the repetition of some of the same words that were used in Psalm 20 here in Psalm 21. And the point that I'm trying to make to us is that the text is leading the congregation. The text is leading us as God's people to celebrate a king who has all power. He wants to show us why that is a good thing for us. It leads us to celebrate, listen to this, not your strength, Not the strength of your particular political party or ruler, but the divine strength of God's King Himself. And and I want to do this in a way that's fair to the text, because you need to hear Psalm 21 in the way that they originally heard it. 
So we'll spend a little bit of time trying to like put ourselves in the biblical world and resonate with the text as it's presented. And then at the end of each stanza, I'll try to like bring this back to where we are and why it matters for us. But to get the overall structure of what's here in Psalm 21, you need to understand that the text is leading us to celebrate the divine strength of our king from two perspectives. There's two perspectives here. One is the, the looking back. They're looking back at what I will call the king's enablement. They're celebrating as they look back at the king's enablement. It's a past tense thing, and they are enamored with the fact that he was endowed with so much power and ability. And then there's another perspective, and that is one of looking ahead. And they look ahead at what I'm going to call the king's execution. Not his death, but by execution I mean follow through. He not only will win in the past, but he will win again in the future. They see two different angles of the great joy here. They're, they're celebrating this, and we want to do the same. So we first peruse again verses 1 through 7, where they look back at his enablement. This first stanza, again, is a celebration of strength, but what you're going to notice in particular is that in verses 2 through 7, you're going to see all these reasons why uh, the king or all these outcomes, excuse me, of the king's strength in that previous battle. So let's just imagine for a second that, that he's come back from this, this particular battle, and he has all of the spoils of war with him. And just as the campaign began at the place of worship in prayer, so also it concludes at the pr- place of worship. And they dust off their favorite psalm here and sing again of the king's triumph. But they sing about it in a way that gives all the glory to God. Notice what they're saying of their king in this psalm, verse 1. O Lord, or Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, in your strength the king rejoices. Notice that. The king is rejoicing in his strength and in your salvation, in your deliverance, in your victory. How greatly he exalts. He exalts. He boasts. He's, He's proud. Not of himself. He's proud of the salvation that was brought to him by by God. And so what did this strength do for him? Well, notice in verse 2, it says that it, it gave him the ability to ask whatever he wanted of God. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. I mean, this is a pretty powerful king. I mean, like, he went into that battle, and why did he win? What kind of strength did he have? He had the divine strength of God Almighty Himself. Whatever He asked God to do in that particular battle happened. And they're thanking God for it. I mean, He had direct access with God. I mean, that's pretty strong. Not only that, but this strength also enabled Him to enjoy regal or royal riches. Look at verse 3. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. So the king comes back wealthier than he left. And how did that come about? God enabled it through the strength that he gave him. You don't take the crown of another king through conversation. You do it through conquest. He wins. He won. He comes back with that other king's crown. This is it's a total win. The strength that God gave also would provide him with some length of days. Look at this, verse 4. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now, um, let's interrupt the flow of thought here for a second, because this would lead me to ask some serious questions if I was the normal ancient Near Eastern Israelite being led to praise God for his strength given to his king. I totally get a king wresting the crown from another guy. I totally get the king having his prayers answered. I don't get a king that lives forever because in that context, I'd never seen it. It's funny, some um, biblical scholars even would try to say, well, it can't mean that the king would live forever because they didn't believe in eternal life in any way. And yet the case for eternal life would be made from the pages of the Old Testament. That wasn't just something that would be invented by Paul. This was a hope that they found in the Scriptures themselves. 
So all I'll say at this moment, I will clarify later, is that in this particular passage of praise, when they're saying, oh, long live the king, it isn't just long live the king. They're saying, may he live forever and ever. There's something interesting. There's something curious that should be making you wonder, like, what kind of king could have the kind of strength that would allow him to overcome fully and finally death itself? But for now, we'll just say, he's at least going to live a really long time. They're excited about that. Another thing that the strength would give him is seen in verse 5, uh, glory, splendor, majesty, see it? His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. I love those terms. I mean, this guy, because of God's strength, has a superior status. Uh, uh, glory, the Hebrew word kavod, it means weight or significance or heft. I mean, this guy matters. Like if there was a, a, a Time magazine for 100 most important people up through the millennia, like this guy's at the top of the list. He, he's got glory. He's got weight. He's got significance. Not only that, but it says that God's strength gave him splendor. Splendor means that which shines. He stands out. Like he is, he is well known. He is sought after. He's the kind of people that people want to take pictures with. I mean, like, that strength actually put him on a platform. It gave him Twitter followers, if there was such a thing. Not only splendor, but it also says majesty. It's hard for us because we don't have a monarchy. But all that pomp and circumstance associated with King Charles ascending the throne a few months ago, like, he's got that. This king's got that. He's of a better lineage than even that. Like, his, his royalness, like, his, his royal stock climbed on account of this particular victory. And notice that it all happened not through his finesse, not through his prowess. It says that his glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. God did it. God was the one that enabled this particular king. And then here's the last thing that the strength got him. It says, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. I like this because, like, normally when you think of really strong people, really powerful people, you kind of think of them as being really stern and mean and gruff. And yet here it just says, this guy's happy. He's blessed. He's blessed. He is, uh, he's glad with the joy of the presence of God upon him. He's a strong king. He's a happy king. He, he's a trusting king. Look at verse 7. Notice how he got all this strength in the first place. This is amazing. For the king trusts in the Lord, Yahweh, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. You know why the king is so powerful? Because of God's covenant, God's promise to him. That, that term, the king trusts in the Lord, that was the only right response to God making a promise to someone. Last week we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God had promised the Davidic line that it would reign forever and ever. And, and how would the king ever experience such victory? It would only be when he trusted in the name of Yahweh his God, not when he trusted in horses and chariots. This king is not just a happy king, he's a holy king. He's one who depends on God, like he knows where his strength is. He trusts in the Lord, and in fact, the Lord enables his trust. Notice this in the second half, it says, through the steadfast love of the Most High, through the covenant love of the Most High God, he shall not be moved. It means that his faith will never falter. It stands on a firm foundation. What does it? What, what makes his faith so strong? It says, particularly, the steadfast love of the Most High. God not only calls this king to believe, but he enables this king to believe. I mean, this is a party. This is an absolute celebration. The king is not just strong, but he is good. He is not just good, but he is strong. And I want you to think about it from their perspective. You know, we imagine this from the atomic energy perspective, like, all right, you want that on your team? Now I want you to think about a king like this. How amazing if this guy is on your team. 
Like, what kind of confidence would it give you stepping into the battles and threats ahead if you knew that a guy had this kind of access to God Almighty, that he had this kind of strength? I mean, you want this guy quarterbacking your football team. You want this guy commanding your army. You want this guy leading your nation. Like, they are pumped. They're excited about the strength that God has given to his king. He's directly plugged into God's power. He's displaying a fundamental righteousness and goodness. And yet, yet, if you've read your Bible recently, you're going to find out, like, real quick, that this guy, the king described in Psalm 21, he doesn't exist. They never had a king like that. I mean, really, I'm still, I told you last week I'm reading through 2 Kings, I'm still there. And I'm a little more depressed this week than I was last week. It's a hot mess. It's failure after failure after failure after failure. In fact, I was talking to someone after church last Sunday. This was so helpful. If you've ever heard of like Bible study fellowship, it's like a, a women's Bible study. Some people love it. And so there's this, there's a local BSF group that was doing uh, Samuel and Kings. And, and the, the lady told me that they were studying through that. And the, the leaders of BSF told them that they've never had more people quit BSF than in that particular term. Now, again, I don't know what was going on with the teaching, but I, I, I could get it. If they're going to go historical, grammatical, line by line, you know, like it just gets kind of dour. So, I mean, I'm looking at this psalm and I'm like, well, man, it's really cool to be able to break out, you know, we are the champions after your king wins. But could you really say this of any of your kings? I mean, was David this kind of guy? Solomon? I mean, Josiah? But did he have this kind of legacy? I mean, was anybody dominating with this type of of victory? Like, no, no. And yet they still sing it. They still sing it. Why? Because they still believed that a king like this would come. Sure, they would sing this song in the everyday ordinary battles that their kings would win, and yet they knew that they were singing about more than they had experienced. They knew that there would still be one who would come that would ultimately have this kind of favor with God, one who would pray and whatever he prayed for would be answered, one who would so be in tune with God that he would live forever and ever, one who would indeed conquer all enemies. I love the help that we receive from the Scottish Baptist pastor Alexander McLaren, he says, these daring anticipations are too exuberant to be realized in any but one whose victory was achieved in the hour of apparent defeat, whose conquest was both his salvation and God's, who prays knowing that he is always heard, who is king of men because he endured the cross and wears the crown of pure gold because he did not refuse the crown of thorns, who lives forevermore having been given by the Father to have life in himself, who is the outshining of the Father's glory and has all power granted unto him, who is the source of all blessing to all, who dwells in the joy to which he will welcome his servants and who himself lived and conquered by the life of faith and so became the first leader of the long line of those who have trusted and have therefore stood fast. Brothers and sisters, they may have not had this king, but we do. It is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look back to his victory and we celebrate and we rejoice and it gives us confidence for the days ahead. I mean, we look back 2,000 years and we see how he prayed and battled and prevailed and how he received rich blessings forever, as how he won our battles, how he overcame our opposition, as he established a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12, 28 says. Like, that gives us great confidence. 
God's king is strong. He is mighty. He is powerful. It is a divine strength. And his previous victories enabled by God prove it. Friends, that's why we keep looking back to Jesus. We, we, we keep seeing like his track record. We, we look at his record. I don't know about you, but when I see a, a basketball team you know, coming into March that's 31-0, and 0, I'm just feeling a little better. My team this year broke 500, barely, and didn't even make the tournament. But four years ago, they were 27 and 4. And I'm like, all right, I'm feeling, I'm feeling better. You look at the past performance to find hope for the future. We're constantly looking back to the wins of our King Jesus to, to give our hearts confidence for the battles that we'll face in the days ahead. It's, it is totally right and wise and good to look back to the strength of the king. I mean, our king, he was strong enough. He was strong enough to resist sin, to banish evil, to remedy disease, to conquer storms, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead, to die for sinners, to defeat death itself, to ascend to God the Father. Like, that's our king. And that is good news for us because here's the deal, friends. This is what we're tempted to do in our day-to-day existence. Like we come to the Psalms and we say stuff like, oh God, I need power. Oh God, I need strength. Oh Lord, please do something great in and through me. So me, it's so American. I need some power. And yet the way the text does it, it's like, no, you know what? These people, they're totally cool with not having any power. As long as my king's got the power, we'll be okay. He's strong enough. He will rule. He will reign. He will take care of it. My friends, I want to encourage you. I say this to those of you who are in Christ. Our Christ, our king, he has the power to save lost loved ones He has the power to calm anxious minds. He has the power to heal our broken hearts. He has the power to reach those unreached people groups. He has the power to multiply our regular gifts. He has the power to revive our rebellious country. He has the power to overcome our strongest sins. He has the power to forgive our deepest failures. It should be a rallying point for us as the people of God to look back to our strong king and his past victories and say, it's all good. It's a party. It's a celebration. They are pumped that one would have this kind of strength. But they not only look back, but they're going to look ahead. They look back at his past enablement, but they they look ahead to his future execution, like his follow-through. Before we we, we read it, I I need to reel you back in for a second. We we jumped ahead to Jesus, but I want to get you thinking again back like they would. Let's, Let's assume that they didn't know that who this Jesus was yet. They're thinking about it through the lens of, of their, their theocratic monarchy. Think, think about this like they did. No. The second stanza, <clears throat> these people, they were going to say about a human king that he was going to be so powerful that he was going to win whatever battles came his way. Now, I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm a little stunned that anybody could have this much confidence in a human ruler, and yet they obviously took 2 Samuel 7 very seriously. They kept thinking and waiting, maybe this will be the one, maybe this will be the one. So they would say in confidence that not only did he win that last battle, but he's going to win the future ones. And what's so intriguing to me, and it should be intriguing to you, as you read these, these verses, like 8 through 12, is that the pronouns... You know, those are the, like, he, she, it. Like, the pronouns aren't clear. You don't know. Is he talking about the king? Or is he talking about God? Like, this victory that they're going to anticipate for the future. Like, 
It's confusing. You're going to read it. Don't worry. I'm going to read it out loud again. But we're going to read it. And I want you asking yourself as you're reading it, who's he talking about? I mean, if this were like my eighth grade grammar teacher, she would have a fit. Because we don't know the antecedent of the pronoun. But so, okay, so you do your best to figure it out. Ready? Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Do you see what I'm saying? It could be God. It could be God that's going to execute this big win in the end. It could be the king. If it was up to me, as commentators are split, if it's up to me, I'm going to give the edge. I'm going to give the edge to it referring to the human king because of verse 9 in particular, which says, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. It wouldn't make sense to me that he'd be saying, you, 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 and then he goes to the Lord, and then he says, you, you, you. But it's intentionally ambiguous. It's intentionally ambiguous. I love the way that... Um, James Montgomery Boyce explains it. He says, the debate here involves a distinction without a difference, because in any case, it is God who works through the king. So, you could say it's primarily the king who's going to like, conquer all his enemies, or it's primarily God who's going to conquer all his enemies, but here's the deal. God works through his king. So, this, this flex, if you will, of God's strength is going to happen through the chosen king. And so what we see here, though, is that they had great confidence that this king would be so enabled by God that he would win all future battles. And I'll rehearse this briefly. Note the specific facets of this coming total victory. Verse 8, he's going to successfully hunt down all the enemies, all the haters, all those who oppose him. There will be no one left. He will find them. He will hunt them down. Verse 9, this is amazing. Like, his wrath is going to burn brightly like, like an oven that is on fire. He will consume them in his wrath. He will wrap them up. He will swallow them with his divine vengeance. And again, that's a pretty powerful metaphor. And it's easy to go to the New Testament immediately and think, oh, I know what this is talking about. But hear it through their lens. They're just seeing it as a figure of speech. We're like, it's going to be total consumption and devastation. Verse 10, no rebels are even going to come after them. It says, you'll destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. There will be no one left to rebel against this king. And then verse 11, there's no legitimate contest to his conquest. It will be full. It will be final. Notice this. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. And then finally, this picture's graphic. It says, you will put them to flight. All future enemies, you will put them to flight because you will aim at their faces with your bows. I've never had a bow and arrow aimed at my face. I can't imagine what that would be like. But you know what it makes me think of? It's like if you're ever, like, watching cops. <laughs> I used to do that as a kid. And they're like, we've got you surrounded. But I can't imagine the feeling of actually, like, being surrounded or, or maybe, like you've seen the movie where, you know, the enemy has been apprehended and there's like snipers on the roof and all of a sudden he's got all these red dots over him. Like, that can't be a good feeling. What he's saying is that they're going to they're gonna see the dots on their chest and they're going to run away. He's got them covered from all angles. There is no escaping this king when he goes on his conquest. And that gives them great delight. Notice how they finish out the psalm. Be exalted, O Yahweh. Not king, but be exalted, O Yahweh. O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is great news for them. Not only did their king win in the past, he's going to win in the future. He's going to conquer. 
And again, we know that they had yet to see a king with an undefeated track record. And so they were holding out and waiting for that one who would finally win the final battle, the one who would ultimately outlast all enemies. They were still waiting for that. And so we know who that king is, and we can be assured, friends, that he has not only won the most significant battles, but he will ultimately in the future win the war. Whatever threats impinge upon you, your Christ will conquer them. He will overcome. He will be successful. I think of uh, that, that line in, in Luther's uh, mighty fortress. He says, if we in our own strength confide, the battle would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, Lord of armies. From age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. It comes from him. We, we do have a conquering king. We, these, these battles, these threats, they're not something that we ourselves have to overcome. Christ overcomes them for us. I want you to understand something, that, that, that Christ will conquer all that which threatens his people. Like, there should be great hope in that, great celebration. I understand. Like those, I know there's some people in here who are probably thinking like, we need warning. We need warning. We need warning for the lost. I will talk to lost people in a second. This wasn't written to lost people. This was written to people who were redeemed. They are finding encouragement in the fact that they have a king who will conquer all that ails them. So before you get to the bad news, let's get to the good news. Your king wins, and he overcomes every single threat. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 8, that Esai read earlier for us, did you hear the note of hope that the Thessalonians, who were regularly being persecuted, I'm not talking marginalized, I'm talking physically persecuted for their faith. Like, did you, did you hear the encouragement from the Apostle Paul? This is what he says about the returning Lord Jesus. He says, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Like that is good news. God will eliminate the threats. But I get it. I get it because like some of us struggle with that. We're like, oh, I don't. I don't know that I want Jesus to like repay vengeance on, on everybody. Like I, nobody's been that mean to me. I mean, I got cut off in traffic the other day, but I don't want that person to experience eternal wrath. Or maybe I'm the only person that feels that way. I think that we have two problems that keep us from appreciating this. One is we live pretty cushy lives. I mean, let's just acknowledge it is Southwest Florida. Most of us, I know a few of you have, but most of us have never seen battle. We've never seen anyone physically trying to take our life at all costs. And so we don't know what it's like to long for vengeance against someone who is hell-bent to destroy us. So I would say, first of all, that our view of sin is too too low, like we don't realize the real threat. Our, our view of God and His justice and His goodness and His rightness is also too low, like we think that we have a better standard of justice than he does, but he says all rebellion must be eliminated, and this is good and right and wise. I will eliminate the threat. What would that do for us, friends, if we, instead of like debating God's total victory at the end or trying to hedge it or calm it down, if we just embraced it and said that in the end our God in Christ wins? Like, I get it. 
There's maybe stuff you don't understand about it, but let's just take it by faith like they did. Like, they saw this as good news. The text is calling you to see this as good news. Like, how would it change your week, your month, your year, your decade, if you knew that Jesus would ultimately overcome everything that threatens you? I think it'd be helpful in those sins that we do more, or those things that we do more resonate with, like our own sin. <laughs> do you not feel that threat on a regular basis? Where you're battling against this, this, these tendencies, this like internal enemy that provokes you to do stuff that is self-destructive and displeasing to Jesus. And don't you just long for Jesus to conquer? <laughs> don't you just wish that he would just finally and fully win over those things that threaten you? John Newton, the, the former slave trader turned preacher, writer of Amazing Grace, said this in a letter. He's confessing. He says, I want more experience in my soul of that spiritual energy which is mighty to pull down strongholds and to lay every imagination and high thing low in the dust and bring every roving thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And to that, I'm like, amen. But this is the part of his letter that I like so much. Say amen if you ever feel this way. My heart is like a country but half subdued, where all things are in an unsettled state and mutinies and insurrections are daily happening. You feel that way? You feel the mutinies, you feel the insurrections, don't you just wish they would stop? Christ will conquer. He will overcome. He will not only, not only forgive you of the penalty of sin, but he will enable you to have power over sin, and he will one day fully and finally eradicate the presence of sin. That's good news, friends. That changes your perspective on the future. You've got a king that not only won, but one that is winning and will win. He conquers sin in our hearts. Friends, he will get this world under control. I say this to the news watchers in the room. I gave up on that a couple years ago. But for those of you who are wringing your hands about upcoming primaries and elections and, you know, the state of the country and the state of the world, I get it. It's bad. I, I, I totally understand. And, and I'm not provoking any, any pacifism here at all. I actually think that this will promote godly activity, but I want to tell you something. You don't win the battle. He will. He wins. He may fix it before his return and make things better, or he will irremediably, irrevocably fix it upon his physical presence on this earth, but like he's going to fix it. And that should enable you to like move with confidence, to stop with the despair of how terrible things are. Sure, lament it when you see it, but prayerfully pursue change, knowing that victory is ultimately going to come to Christ, God's King. It's okay. I do need to say it would be irresponsible if I didn't actually say that Christ coming victory and win over all his enemies is good news for those who are on Christ's team. There may be some of you in here this morning who don't know if you're under the lordship and the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And I want to tell you something like straight up in love. Like, if you persist in your rebellion, this will not be good for you. The, that Second Thessalonians passage talked about God displaying His eternal wrath against His enemies, like His judgment. And, I, and I'm not trying to, like, fear monger, and I'm not trying to, like, ruin your week, and I'm not trying to guilt you into anything outside of giving up on your resistance against the Lord Jesus, laying down the arms of your rebellion, and leaning upon Him alone for full and final salvation. I'm telling you bad news so I can tell you good news. I'm going to read just three verses for you. They're from Hebrews chapter 9. 
And I want you to hear them because most people in my position only will read to you the middle verse. But I want you to hear the verse that comes before the middle verse and the one after it. Hebrews 9, verses 26 to 28 says, hear this. But as it is, he has appeared, talking about Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you, do you, are, are you picking up what I'm laying down? Like, I'm not just saying, you're going to die and there's judgment. What I'm saying is what the author is saying. You don't have to experience judgment. He came to lay down his life so that you could be acceptable to God. And he's coming not to primarily exercise wrath, but to exercise rescue. And so how do, how do you get to the good graces of this king? Because this is where it could get bad newsy again. Most people would be like, okay, well, I guess they're saying I've got to clean my life up before I get into this, this Jesus thing. No, that's not what he said. Some people think, you know what, I guess I've got to like, get in the right religious affiliation and start doing the right religious rituals so I can get in on this thing. And that's not what he said. He said that Christ satisfied it once for all. You just simply depend on him. Now, this is great news today. Sure, you've been rebelling against God, and so have I for most of my life, and yet He provides full pardon. His victory is not just for He Himself. He includes others in it, only those who will depend on Him by faith alone. I pray that you would do that today. If that's confusing you, you don't know what I mean by that. Like, let's talk. Talk to someone around you. Absolute power. Absolute power. Does it really corrupt? Absolutely. In the hands of a mere man, Lord Acton may be right. In the hands of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, this is good news. Good news, friends. I encourage you today to look back and see his wins and gain some confidence for the week to come. Look ahead in faith with some optimism that he will prevail. He will conquer. I love the old hymn. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. If the light of the sun touches it, Jesus will fix it. He'll conquer it. It'll be good. And so to those of you who are indeed subjects of this king, May I just please leave you with two considerations of of how a true appreciation for this lordship and this power and this strength would look in your life. Just just to consider, like, do I see this in my life? It's It's a question you could ask yourself. It's a good lunch discussion. Because everybody's going to say, oh yeah, amen, Jesus is strong, that's awesome. But To know if you really agree with that, I think there's two ways you would see it fleshed out in your life. Here's the first. There would be a confidence in Christ. A confidence in Christ. Some of you are like confident. You're naturally optimistic people. You you tend to see the good of things. But what is your confidence based in? Is it really in Christ? See, we have to be careful because sometimes we think that we're winning or that we will win on account of our political affiliation or our personal merits. (laughs) How much of our confidence is truly coming from the fact that, that Christ rules and reigns? So if you're underconfident, that's another conversation, but if you're like, yeah, I'm I'm feeling good about the future, I just would say, why? Why? It should be because of Jesus and Him alone. Here's a second expression of somebody who's truly celebrating the strength of their King. 
Not only do they have confidence in Christ, but I will say this, they have confidence in Christ. So one is, I'm focusing on the verb here as opposed to its object. Like, do you actually normally, and let me put it that way, do you normally go through life with an expectancy that your God wins? I get it, friends. There are seasons in which we don't feel it. Thank the Lord that one-third of these psalms acknowledge the realities of living in fallen bodies with fallen minds and fallen hearts, and we sometimes can't feel it. No guilt to someone who is the occasional sufferer. But in our more normal times of life, is it our general pattern to look to the sins that we struggle with, the society that seems to be decaying around us, uh, the future needs of this world and universe with great confidence that our king will win. Spurgeon said it this way, a holy confidence in Jehovah is the true mother of victories. A holy confidence in Jehovah is the true mother of victories. There's this debate among like Um, middle school athletic coaches. What comes first, the confidence or the win? You can debate that another time. I'll tell you how the scriptures work. It comes from the win that Jesus won, which gives you the confidence to face the wins that you have in the future. We look to his win, that gives us confidence so that we can enjoy those future opportunities to win in Him. I pray that that would mark us all. And, and what would, would keep us so confident? What would keep us so happy? None other than continuing as a church and as individuals to behold our King. Don't, don't get introspective here as much as you need to look to your strong, sufficient King. We're going to do that in song after I pray. As we sing, Behold Our King. I hope it resonates in your heart this week. And then before we dismiss, we're going to do a brief prayer for a brother in our church who's going out to seminary uh, and eventually to reach an unreached language group. So that'll be our, our final prayer, and we'll be dismissed after that. But let me pray now as we prepare to sing this final song. Father in heaven, We praise you for the strength that you've put on display in King Jesus. This is good. This is right. He has won. He will win. Or for those who have not yet, Lord, seen the beauty of his good rule, I pray that you would open their hearts to it. Lord, expose their sin as that which is the problem, and may they see the solution alone in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, turning from their sin, trusting in him. Lord, do that even today, even now. And for those who have already done that, Father, as we continue to look to you, our strong king, and what you've done And your son, the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill our hearts with confidence in the battles that we face not only this week, but in the years to come. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.